a privilege to be here. For me, I want to thank Dave Maddox for arranging for a, a time we can share around the Word. And let's get right to it. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. In, in asking the Lord and in praying and in thinking about what would be best for us to study together as a Christian college at the beginning of a new year, um, I reflected back on my seminary days. I graduated two years ago and... Uh, uh, many people say that seminary or Christian college will be the most dry time spiritually you'll ever have in your life because you're around and so near the things of God that you become so familiar that they're not precious anymore. Well, I found that to be just the opposite case for me in seminary. It was the most ter terrific time of spiritual growth I ever had, ever had in my life. And looking back, I was envious of those friends of mine who had an opportunity to have that kind of environment in Christian college. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of that. But... The question that really rests before us is, how in the world can you make so much doctrine, so many things that you're learning about, so much stuff that's going into your mind, how can you turn that over and make it practical? That's a serious problem. You're going to have so many inputs of Bible this semester, so many inputs in sermons and lectures and teachers and times at church and times at chapel. All sorts of inputs are going to be coming at your mind. How in the world can you possibly take all of that data, that doctrine, and turn it into spiritual life and spiritual growth? Well, I believe that Paul gives us the answer here in the first four verses of Colossians chapter 4. What he's done for two chapters is give us strict and very precise doctrine about who Jesus Christ is. And the apex of really what he's saying in chapters 1 and 2 is in... Um, Verse 9 and 10, For in Him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made pleroma, complete, full, running over, absolutely no possibility of putting any more in. Let me teach you the theme of Colossians for a second. And I want you to repeat it after me. Jesus Christ is all I need. Can you say that one more time? One time. Ready? Jesus, okay, stop. We got some freshmen on top that are really struggling. Jesus Christ is all I need. Ready? Jesus Christ. Very good. If Jesus Christ is really all you need, and we know that the sufficiency of Scripture teaches us that He is our sufficiency, then why is it we struggle so much? I mean, why do we have such a hard time having all of this input in walking in the faith in a manner that's pleasing to Christ? Well, Paul gives us two prescriptions this morning. Two prescriptions for making doctrine practical. How in the world can you make doctrine practical? Paul says, look, just like you would go to a doctor and you would get advice or a prescription or medicine and things that would help you in your ailment, we come to Paul and come to the Scripture and say, boy, it's tough having all this input, and then turning around and saying, I can't live at all. Paul says, i got a prescription for it. Two prescriptions for developing your spiritual life making doctrine practical. The first is this. You need to develop Christ-centered compulsion. A Christ-centered compulsion. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Before we can really look at those two prescriptions and that Christ-centered compulsion that's the first one, you need to uh, really climb through that first phrase. 
if then you have been raised up with Christ. I don't like the translation if. I'd rather change it to since you have been raised up with Christ because if you know back in chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead verse 13 he made you alive together with him it's not if maybe we were raised up with Christ it's for sure since we've been raised up with Christ and if you'll read Romans chapter 6 it says since we've died our life is hidden with Christ in his death in his burial in his resurrection we have newness of life just as He has newness of life. Since we've died and we've been raised up with Christ. The with Christ is the emphasis there. With Christ. There's so much discussed in the epistles and especially in Colossians about Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him. He's the steadfastness of our faith, able to walk, able to cause us to walk in a manner worthy of Him. He roots us and builds us up. He dwells all the fullness of the deity and his person and then imparts that to us. Paul spends a whole book in Colossians telling us about the glory of Christ and how we should live in him. We're complete in Christ, sealed. We don't need anything else. And Paul is really saying, Colossians, you need to become what you are. And I think in turn he's telling this, listen, we need to become what we are. When you became a Christian, when you gave your life to Christ, what happened? He took you out of the domain of darkness and placed you in the kingdom of light of His beloved Son, right? When He did that, we were supposed to die to that old life. The problem is we act too much like spiritual zombies. Yes, we're dead to the old life. Yes, we're not supposed to walk in that manner anymore. But there's a, a, a voice that keeps calling back. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love this, he, he gives a picture of two fields. And we were redeemed from one field to the other, but there's a road in between. And even though we're in Christ's kingdom, we still play right next to the fence so that we can hear Satan's voice on the other side that woos us back to those old leanings, those old desires. The reason that most Christians struggle and most Christians complain and most Christians have problems is because we don't spend enough time with our minds on Christ to remember that He's all, our need, all we need. I mean, struggle is really no more than uh, a sin, isn't it? I'll never forget uh, Jeff Dodge, a friend of mine a few years back in the college department. He, uh, picked, he and his wife picked Elizabeth Elliot up from uh, LAX. We're bringing her back up to church. And they were climbing the, the Sepulveda Pass over there. And uh, Jeff was asking her, he says, oh, yeah, because you know, she's like the apex of wisdom on relationships, right? Anyway, um, so he says, uh, uh, Miss Elliot, Elizabeth, Miss Tar, uh, you know, you never know what to call her. Excuse me. Uh, that I have a friend who uh, uh, it, she's been in this relationship for, for like two years and, and, and she's struggled with it and, and they've struggled physically and they've struggled in this they've broken up they've back together and her parents hate him his parents hate da, 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 and uh, it's just what does she need to do she's just struggling so much and in her austere if you, have you guys ever heard Elizabeth Elliot I mean her structured austere she leans up she says struggle if you mean by struggle postponed obedience then they understand what you mean by struggle and Jeff said, okay, we're just going to go over the hill here. And, uh... But you know what? She had a point. Isn't all struggle really a failure to obey Christ? But the reason we don't obey Christ is we don't remember that He's all we need, that He's our sufficiency, that He's the end, that He's the process. Since then, you have been raised up with Christ. You had to be dead to be raised up. It talks about our death to the former life. And remember that the focus of the resurrection is the cross, right? You can't think of the resurrection without remembering the cross. 
One writer has said, the cross not only involves death, it includes resurrection. It severs connections with the past life of the believer and it introduces him to a new life and union with Christ. In chapter 2, verse 13, 14, we find that we are raised up by him nailing the certificate of our debt of sin against God to the cross. You know what interests me about that passage? We sing about it often. But it says, he nailed our certificate of debt to the cross. If you go back and read the gospel narratives, there was no certificate mentioned. Nothing. You can't find a certificate of debt of our sins nailed to the cross, can you? You only find one thing nailed to the cross. Who was it? It was Christ. He didn't just take the certificate and say, here it is tacked on the cross. He said, I am your certificate of debt. I'll pay that debt. And since he paid it in death, we ought to live in newness of life for him. Well, that's just his introduction to really the, the rest of the epistle. You know, it's, um, I read a lot of commentaries on this uh, passage. and So many people think the first four verses of Colossians belong to the doctrinal section. And then you've got another group of people who say, no, the first four verses belong to the practical section. And I think that both are right and neither are right. These four verses serve really as a hinge between the doctrinal section of telling us about Christ and the practical section of living Christ. That's why it's so huge, it's so important to come to this text because he shows you how to make the transition in your mind from knowing to doing. And let me tell you a principle that, that we've taught our high schoolers. It's called the 3D principle. The 3D principle is this. Doing depends on doctrine. Your doing of your Christian faith depends on your doctrine. No one will ever do Christianity for the right reasons and the right motives and the right frame of mind unless your doctrine is right. That's why it's so important that you don't limp into Bible class half asleep and you just kind of listen and take your test and walk out. You're accountable for that stuff. That's living truth. Your doing depends on your doctrine. Well, since we have this resurrection, we are to take the prescription that Paul gives us. What is it? First of all, he says, have a Christ-centered compulsion. He says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Have a Christ-centered compulsion. What does that mean? The word there literally, keep seeking, means don't seek once. You don't just walk in, sign a card, pray a prayer, walk down an aisle, throw your watch in the fire, do, go to camp, do, and then you're done. That's it. This is a keep on for the rest of your life, seeking on and on and on, ongoing. Perpetual process from your new birth until your final death. Keep seeking. Keep seeking what? The things above. The, the ta'ana. The, the, uh, it's a really strange word. To the, the, the above things. And your first thought is, oh, that's talking about Christ. No, it's not Christ because look what it says. Keep seeking the things above what? Where Christ is. So what's going on here? What does this keep seeking the above, the, the above things? Well, what he's saying is your mind needs to be riveted on the things that surround Christ. What are those things? His presence, His reality, His values, His judgments, His calls. Everything that involves Christ's mind is what our minds should be fixed on. Keep seeking. It's a compulsion. The, the, the idea of compulsion comes from the word keep seeking. Now, um, compulsory behavior, compulsive behavior, you hear that thrown around a lot in psychology today, and, and uh, forget that jargon for a second. We know what compulsion means, right? I have a compulsion. I'm just going to confess this. I can't go buy a 7-Eleven without stopping and getting a raspberry iced tea snapple. It's just a compulsion I have. 
And it's like God's calling my life. I walk by and say, I can't. I've got to keep them in business. I stop. I get a Snapple. I can't get I love those things. It's a compulsion. I can't stop. Now, you can pray for me in that because those are things that are about a dollar a pop. But um, it's a compulsion. You can't stop. It's a, it's a behavior that you have trouble uh, controlling. I had a roommate in, in college, and he, uh, he was compulsively neat, and I was compulsively uh, studying. Um, what I mean by that is, is that he, uh, in the bathroom, I mean, there was a place for everything and everything is place. I mean, he got irritated if the toothpaste and the toothbrush weren't parallel to the sink. So I'd go in there in the morning and then rough it all up before I get... And uh, he, he would, at, the night before, he put his tooth, toothpaste on his brush and leave it straight up. I mean, he's just compulsive. Everything was neat. He made his bed every single day. Now, that's enough to make you wonder about him anyway, but he was compulsive about neatness. Irritated the fool out of me. I'm sure none of you have roommates like that. Compulsive behavior. The best illustration I can tell you about a compulsive illust- uh, behavior is my cousin had a, a dog. It was a, it was a poodle. Um, so it was really, I'm not sure if you can quite qualify a poodle as a dog, but it's, uh, his name was, it, you know, poodles are French. His name was Pierre. Uh, Pierre, come here, Pierre. And uh, just as a footnote, they used to always take Pierre, this male dog. They would take him to the, what do you call them, the poodle barbers, or the, the dog barbers, the shearers. Anyway, those guys who do those things. And this is a male dog. And he would come home with his toenails painted red and a little red bow in his hair. And I just look at this and think, if you, I mean, they have totally ripped this dog's masculinity. I mean, he just, he, there is no way he can look in the mirror. That's why the mirrors are all higher than him. If he looks in the mirror, he just commits suicide. Just embarrassing what they did this. And they put this fragrance on him, just, whoa. Pierre used to have this ball, a rubber ball. Now, Pierre didn't, he went through a rubber ball about every two weeks because he didn't just fetch the ball, but he chewed the ball. And when he chewed the ball, um, the, the, ball the ball got wet. I mean, it was just saturated, and you can imagine. And Pierre loved to bring you the ball. You would pick up the, the ball and throw it. He would catch it and bring it back. And at first, it's cute. You come over as a novelty. I love watching dogs play, play flesh. Oh, isn't that cute? He goes. And he keeps bringing you the ball back. And after a while, you think, okay, that's fine, Pierre. Thank you. It's enough. And it was fun. And he just puts the ball in your lap. The, remember the heavy, slobbery ball? And, it's, and then, you know, instead of throwing it like this, you begin throwing it like this. You know? And he gets it and keeps bringing it back. Pierce to bring that back to me, and I get so irritated because I like doing it at first. But he kept on and kept on and kept on bringing that thing back. And finally, when you stop, and you start ignoring the dog. You're having a, a relationship with him. You're ignoring him. I'm just not going to look at him. And the dog's sitting there looking straight at you, and then the stare of the dog starts making you feel uncomfortable. It's like, stop looking at me! So finally, you take the ball and throw it behind the couch or something. But I'm convinced that when Pierre died, and he did, that that's okay I don't want to talk about cats um, uh, Pierre died if they had taken his brain if there had been some contraption some computer and they could have thrown his brain into this this computer and, and uh, uh, said what was in it there would have been one thing this big slobbery massive ball would have shown up on the video that was all this dog thought about and you say well that's stupid Rick you know what though is that all you think about is Christ I mean, if they really took your brain out after your death and in some way could plug it into a computer and say, what was the most on this person's mind? Would it be Christ? Would it be his values? Would it be him? We're talking about having a vertical perspective, not a horizontal perspective. 
says, set your mind, excuse me, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Where Christ is. Can I get, can I get mystical for just a second? Hey, just, just sit tight, just hang on. I, just let me theologize a second here. Have you ever thought about the fact that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus calls the disciples around and he talks to them, gives them their final charge, and then he, then he goes to heaven. Did you ever think about the fact that when he got in the clouds, it, he didn't just go and just kind of disappear in this ethereal uh, uh, mist that was around the earth called God, and he was he went somewhere. Do you think he ceased becoming the God Man when he got into the clouds and out, out of their their, vi- their visual senses? No. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, it's very clear that he is eternally the God man. You know what? Jesus is somewhere right now. He's somewhere right now. When I read this, it just kind of blew me away. I thought, wow, he, he, he's, he's somewhere. He didn't just disappear in the clouds and just vanish, become the green mist of God that surrounds the earth. He's somewhere. Where is he, you say? text tells us. He's seated at the right hand of God. Where is that? I don't know. Maybe it's at the edge of the Milky Way verse. I don't know where that is. But I know he's somewhere. He's seated at the right hand of God. What does it mean to be seated at the right hand of God? Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In other words, it's the highest place of prominence. I love that, that passage is, is in Matthew 20 where, where uh, James and John want to sit on Jesus' right and left hand. They, so they go talk to him, right? No, they don't go talk to him. They send mom. Mom, we want to sit here. the kingdom thing. So Jesus, mom, I just see this. Her mom, James and John's mom come up. Jesus, you know this, uh, we've been watching this kingdom thing, healing and, and making food. And I mean, this is a good deal. I like this and I appreciate it. I follow from distance. But my, my, my boys, they, you remember James and John? Yeah, those guys. They've been following you. And that... You know, I know that you're going to be the king someday and this is the Messiah thing. It's real. I believe the Old Testament. Could maybe, by the way, when you're there and you're sitting on the throne, maybe could you, you know, James, John, right and left, could you do that? And what did Jesus say? That's not mine to give. You know why? No one sits on Jesus' right and left. He sits on the Father's right hand. It's not his place to give, he said. He is eternally subordinate to the Father in terms of his mediation between man and God. What's he doing at the right hand? Romans 8 tells us he's making intercession for the saints. Hey, you want a motive not to sin? Are you a Christian? You want a motive not to sin? Every time you sin, think of it as this. Jesus leans over, whispers in the Father's ear, it's okay, I died for that. Can you imagine that? Every wild thought we have, every rank thought we have, every little dispersing thought we have, everything we do wrong, Jesus has to lean over to the Father's ear and say, it's okay, you can stay your wrath. I died for that. I'll tell you what, you begin thinking about Jesus' intercession for you at the right hand of the Father, it'll cause you not to sin. Jesus died so we wouldn't sin and died knowing we would sin. God forbid that we should ever stay in a perpetual, habitual state of sin. Keep seeking the things above. Heaven's attractive not of, not because of what we do there, but because of who is there, right? Set your mind in the heavenlies. Have a heavenly perspective. Is your compulsion towards Christ? Do you have a compulsion to get up? I mean, I, I played golf uh, uh, a few weeks ago with our pastor. 
and I, I, you don't get to do that very often, so I, I, I remember, I tell you this not to raise me up, but to show you how, how lame I am and sometimes. I had to be somewhere at 7.30, it's about an hour away, so I, I got up at 5 o'clock, 4.45, and the alarm rang, and, uh, and I was out playing golf today. John MacArthur. So I'm trying to pick out what to wear. Got to have the right socks, you know, and brush. I took a shower before I played. It's kind of dumb because you sweat for five hours anyway. But I was ready. The alarm rang. I was out and ready to go. I played really terrible and was embarrassed most of the day, but that's for another time. Um, the next day, the very next day, Saturday morning, the alarm rang. You guys ever play basketball with your alarm where you just kind of dribble it for a while with the snooze bar? Ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. My alarm clock has, has a snooze bar that lasts for nine minutes, okay? Nine minutes. According to my best calculations as to when I finally got up, I hit it nine times. Nine times. That's several hours worth of snooze. I mean, it'd be better just to turn the thing off and then it doesn't irritate you anymore. But what irritated me most is I got up and I'm in the shower and I'm getting ready to go on my day. And I thought, you know what, Rick, you are so lame. You get up, I mean, the alarm rings yesterday morning, bam, you're out of bed, you're ready to go because you got something excited to be about. The alarm rings the next morning, and you have an appointment with the Almighty God to have your quiet time. What a novel thought. And you can't even get out of bed. See, I had a compulsion to get out of bed the previous morning. But it's our compulsion really to foster our hearts with God. He says... Develop a Christ-centered compulsion where you have to have Christ. You've got to have God. You get up in the morning and say, I want to spend time with God or I'll die. I don't want to do anything in the day without doing it. You say, are you, t- you uh, really preaching morning quiet times? Well, I mean, not really. I mean, not unless it's... Well, yeah, kind of. Um, I think it's important to spend time with the Lord in the morning. Can I say that? Is that okay? It's important to do that in the morning. You say, Rick... I appreciate that, but I'm just not a morning person. Just not a morning person. Doesn't have, I mean, I'm best at night. I've learned something from traveling to New Zealand and Australia and back and forth to Tennessee. And, um, that it, it's a strange thing. I don't know if it's biology or something, but your body adjusts to when you go to bed and when you wake up. You know what that means? There, there's really no such thing as a morning person. You want to be a morning person? Go to bed early. What wisdom! You want to be a morning person? Go to bed early. You say, "Well, I go and I lay in bed, and you know, I just I can't go to sleep." You know, get up at four for three mornings in a row, and don't take a nap, and you'll become an early to bed person. I mean, is that so hard? I don't want to be profound there, but is I mean, you want to spend time with the Lord in the morning? Go to bed at night. Have a compulsion. When I deal with students, their biggest problem isn't getting up to have the quiet time. Their biggest problem is going to bed so they can get up to have a quiet time. Anyway, we'll save that for the high school students because it doesn't apply to us. Second prescription. (laughs) Second prescription. Not only should you have a compulsion for Christ, you want to make doctrine practical, everything you learn, say, God, I have to apply this. I want to get up in the morning and think about what my professor said or what my pastor said or what the guy said in chapel or that song I sung. I want to sing that in the morning to you. You have a compulsion where you have to do it. It's called thirsting after God. Secondly, though, he says, don't only develop a Christ-centered compulsion, but secondly, the second prescription for making doctrine practical is this. Develop Christ-centered thinking. Christ-centered thinking. 
Verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. What does it mean to set your mind on the things above? How about things like this? We talked about it's Christ's values, right? God's values, what He thinks. Set your mind this means to keep on thinking. It's in the present active again, to aspire to. But what does it mean? Let, let's get a more practical about what it means to put your mind on the things above, okay? How about this? Set your mind on God's presence. Is that a thing above? Sure. Set your mind on God's presence. I've got a secret to tell you. Everyone look up a second. God is in this room. Right now. Probing. Searching. Thinking. Feeling. Seeking. Longing. He's in this room looking at you right now. But we don't even think about that. I think of that verse in chapter of 2 Timothy where he charges him to preach the word. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. You want to put your mind on the things above, you practice God's presence. I mean, we did this um, a few weeks ago, or a few years ago, I should say, in, in junior high when I was pastoring there and uh, had this one kid go home and said, Mom, God is in the house. She goes, really, where? I mean, he was so captivated. God is here. He's with me right now. And I look at that little 12-year-old and say, you know, that's a cute little story, but he had it better than I do. He really believed God was there and there was someone to be pleased. How about setting your mind, another thing above, in His work, in and around us? Isn't it fun to be used by God? I mean, when you're used by God, stop and say, thank you, Lord, for using me. Can, can we do that again? When you humble yourself and you allow yourself to be disposed to God... How about meditating on the spiritual blessings of Ephesians 1? Our heavenly places. And then probably the best way to put your mind on the things above is the Thurplo principle. The Thurplo. T-H-R-P-L-O. Thurplo. So where do you get that? I mean, everyone talks about how you, how you uh, deal with problems and deal with pain and deal with suffering. Um, in Philippians, you just listen. In Thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that, a, isn't that a treasure? Not yet. Not yet. I mean, that's not a treasure at all yet. It frustrates me to know when people give that verse and then they stop. The meat of the passage is the next verse, the third blow principle. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, T, honorable, H, right, R, pure, P, lovely, L, of good reputation or good repute, G, or is that R? Third, well, yeah. Uh, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of, worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Hear that? Let your mind dwell, think on, be compulsive, keep seeking, keep thinking on these things. Third, well, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good reputation. Let your mind dwell on those things. And by the way, you're only going to find those in the Scripture. You can't find things that are true, lovely, pure, of good repute, lovely in the world it comes right back down to the doing depends on your doctrine you say okay um, that's good keep your mind in the heaven don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good though I mean uh, when I preached this to the kids I didn't want them to go home and say uh, uh, mom Jesus is all I need and she said 
you need to take a shower and no, Jesus is all I need. He, he's my only need and then that's the only need. You guys play a game. I challenge you to play a game here at the college. It's called the need game, okay? Anytime anyone says, you know what, I really need, say stop right there. Jesus is all you need. Irritate people to death. I mean, but it'll bring you back to the right thing. Jesus is all we need. As opposed to what? Keep your mind compulsively thinking. Keep it thinking in the heavenlies as opposed to what? He tells us in the text, the things that are on the earth. You know, I thought about this a long time. What does it mean to keep your mind in heaven rather than the things that are on the earth? Only two things. Two things can occupy your mind on the earth. Occupy your mind on the earth. Number one is relationships. Relationships. Friends, parents, relatives, guys, girls, guys' friends, girls' friends. Relationships. He's saying keep your mind focused on the right place, not on the wrong place, like the relationships. Now, relationships aren't wrong. The majority of the New Testament tells us how to deal with relationships. But not to the extent that that's most important. You ever get a couple who like each other and they're, and they're walking through a, uh, the campus or something and, and they're just, they're so into each other. You know, you get the, you get the girl walking and you looked at her, didn't you? Did you look at her? I saw, I saw you look at her. What are you... You looked at her! And the guy says, well, yeah, okay. okay. You're right. That's it. It's over. And see, that's not even a big deal. Let, let me just put the guy-girl relationship away because what blows me away working with high schoolers is um, that the girls are, are, are... Maybe this is high school. The girls are more interested in their relationship with each other than they are guys. I mean, you let a girl... Uh, let's say Sue's dating Jack, Okay. And Jack likes Chelsea. He's, oh, it's hurt. Don't hurt me. Okay, I'll go have a banana split. But let Sue, whose friend is Andrea, spend the night with Lisa. We were best friends. I. It's over. It's over between us. We're not best friends anymore. You know, guys don't care. I don't know. Is Bob there? He's been, oh, okay, okay, let me call Sam. They don't care. We don't know. We don't understand relationships like that. Girls are, man, I can't believe it. Anyway, that's for another time. Relationships. Is there any relationship in your life right now that's more important than your relationship with Christ? And the other thing that the things on the earth can involve is not only relationships, but things. Things. Things includes money and all the things that come with things. Materialism. You know that excitement you get when you're going to go to the mall tomorrow or sometime and get something new? You just go, oh, can't wait to go. It's just, I got the money in there. Just, uh, the girls are going, the guys are going, I don't have any money anyway. Hey, get a Snapple. <laughs> that excitement you get, I'm going to go get something. That's the same. We should transfer that kind of compulsion and thinking to Christ. I mean, think about it. Just stop for a second. When's the last time you were so excited? You were so excited because you learned something in class. You learned something in chapel. You learned something in church. And you said, you know what, God? I just got to go think about that with you. I just got to think about that with you. What do you do in talking about Christ-centered thinking? What do you do with your mind when it's not engaged in a task? How about when you're driving? I, I learned something new uh, last week. A uh, brand new thing. They, they, they made this thing, uh, you may have seen it on, on CNN or someplace, they made this thing on the radio, uh, it's brand new, just, just invented, it's called the off switch. Um, you can actually, I've, I've just seen it on, you can actually turn the radio off. I mean, I never knew that till the end, because I always turn the car on and my radio's on and it go, it's on, but there is actually an off switch. 
in most cars. And if not, you can get some little pliers and do that and then reconnect it every time. There's an off switch. How about getting in the car just one time and not turning on music or anything and just thinking about God? Just praying. Dr. Roscoff, who's a seminary professor at the Master Seminary, uh, coveted 15 years ago to never have a radio or tape player in his car because he always wanted to pray. I don't think we've spent, some of us, 10 minutes in a car without a radio or something on to occupy our mind. What do you do when your mind's not engaged? How about when you're washing clothes or ironing? What are you thinking about? Maybe simple, but what are you thinking about? Your mind's thinking about something. Make it think about the things that are above. The things that you've learned. Chapel, class, church. When you're doing uh, your work, if, you, if it allows you that, when you're walking to class, I can see this starting tomorrow. Everybody's going to walk to class going, what are you doing? Thinking about the things above. You've got to be courteous, so don't just do that. But if you have a chance, think about the things that are above, okay? Put your mind there. Why not? How about going to sleep? A guy told me when I was uh, younger, he says, you know what? You should never pray when you're going to sleep because that's rude to God. You, I mean, can you imagine talking to somebody and falling dead asleep talking to them? So I, was, so I, would, I would start praying as a little kid and I was like, dear Lord, okay, I'm sorry. Talk to you tomorrow. I was so frightened. I was going <laughs> to fall asleep on God. He was going to be mad at me. And I can remember waking up in the morning thinking, okay, I'm sorry I fell asleep last night, but we can talk right now if you want to, but boy, I've got to go. T-. Just terrified. Is there any better way to fall asleep than talking to God? Or thinking about Scripture? It's a simple, I don't want to be over-simplistic. It's a simple point, but put your mind on the things that concern God. The things that concern Christ. The things you're learning here. That's why Deuteronomy 6 says, put reminders all around you, on your forehead, on your wrist your doorpost everywhere. Put things everywhere to remind you about God. We should be like a compass. No matter what you do to a compass, you can spin it around, shake it up, and when you throw it down, bam, the needle always points north. Our minds should be so saturated with the things of God that no matter how you shake us or move us, bang, the needle always points to God. Talking about having a Christian mindset, Christ-centered compulsion and Christ-centered thinking. He says, develop that in the next two verses by looking at your past, you died, and your present. Christ is your life and your future. You're going to be with Christ someday. You know, the, um, a friend of mine, uh, uh, last year, his, his fiance, a week before he was to get married, um, was killed in a head-on car crash. My best friend in high school. Um, he was really down, and, and obviously he was shaken and depressed and he came out to California to spend a week with me right after that. I, I flew back to do our funeral. He flew out two days um, after that. And uh, he says, Rick, I was, I was just, I was flying and it was raining in Chattanooga and I, I was having trouble and, and you know, it was rocky and turbulent and, and we, it was gray and raining and, and we got in the clouds and it even got more rocky. And he says, I don't want to go there. And he says, all of a sudden, bam, everything got smooth. And there was blue sky and there was the sun and he said, it just shook me like I've never been shaken before. He said, I forgot that it was like this above the clouds. I forgot that there was a reality that I wasn't perceiving at that point. You know what he'd done? God had taught him what it means to put your mind in heaven and your compulsion in heaven, even if it's raining under the clouds. You want to make doctrine practical? Be compulsive about thinking about what you've learned. 
actually think about what you've learned when you walk away from a spiritual um, input from church or chapel or class. Can you do that? Let's pray about it. Father, Paul's given us a prescription to put our minds in the right places and to think on the right things. Help us to do that. Make our minds to dwell on those things which you've taught us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand up, and as you stand up, you can be dismissed.